Hello, and welcome to the Craft Brewed Music Podcast, music interviews for serious listeners. You may have heard of our curated music discovery app. The podcast lets us dig deeper and get to know the creators of that music, as well as others that will broaden your horizons. I'm Brian Horner, founder and curator of Craft Brewed Music, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host Aaron Stamen, a Craft Brewed Music artist. Mike Dillon is a vibes player, percussionist, songwriter, singer, a Royal Potato Family recording artist who's put out no less than three albums this year and is a member of the Craft Brewed Music family as well. We've got some of his music in the Discovery app alongside some of his cohorts like Charlie Hunter and Helen Gillet. Thanks for taking the time to be here today, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me. Welcome, Mike. Hi, Aaron. So I wanted to relay this. I was at the uh, uh, the bus stop this morning uh, with my 10-year-old waiting for the bus, and one of the other parents was there, and he knows that I'm into music and frequently listening to new stuff. He's like, hey, what are you, what are you listening to these days, Aaron? I was like, oh, man, this artist, uh, it's basically, you know, ultra groovy jazz funk thing, but it kind of oscillates between that and this trippy punk rock with kind of edgy vocals that fall somewhere in between Tom Waits and Johnny Rotten. And then occasionally it dips into this sinister electronica thing, a la Trent Reznor. Uh, and then it's like all centered around the vibraphone. And as I'm <laughs> saying this, uh, I could see his eyes getting bigger and bigger. And he's like, wow, he's like, I'm talking to a crazy person. <laughs> nice. Um, you can go, and- oh, it sounds like Mike Dillon. <laughs> <laughs> struck me though as, as i was trying to describe what you do is there there your listener is out there and you've 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 found them over the uh the course of your career uh and i'm very curious uh for people who are hungry for the very thing i've described uh how did you how did you build that audience how did you find that audience one person at a time and believe me we're still building that audience kevin calibro from royal potato (laughs) i'd have some very pointed commentary (laughs) about my building skills but um you know it started off long many years ago 30 something plus years ago now in the late 80s and back Then it wasn't so vibraphone centered as much as it was percussion Mm -hmm. and and, and rant. And, you know, we, we, I came out of the Texas funk punk scene, which had all these cool bands that we're all in our early twenties and we love P funk. We love, you know, the old school red hot chili peppers and fishbone and bad brains. I mean, it, you know, the fish, uh, Firehose, Minutemen, all, and it's not just me, but like all these other bands and Beastie Boys and hip hop, 
all the mm-hmm. stuff that was happening, there were just all these clubs. That was what we were all doing. Like so many bands, you you either that or you like already like doing like the grunge sort of Nirvana thing that uh, was becoming very influential at the time, or just straight ahead punk rock, or or you were cover bands. You know, that, it seemed like that's what it was back then in Dallas. So uh, all the bands between Dallas, Austin, and Houston would get together and play and do shows, and we built a nice little scene out of that to where there would be like. 500 kids a night at the shows and from that it just sort of grew outward toured around the country for years with billy goat and then when that scene sort of came to the end then i jumped somehow ended up in the jam band scene and charlie would hunter would probably have a few things to say about it but to me the jam band scene was just some some place they threw you if you were like in the gray areas where they didn't know what to do with you. Well, they're not straight up just like rock and roll. They're not straight up like straight ahead mm-hmm. jazz or, or straight up R&B, but they're not Grateful Dead either. So yeah, I guess we'll let them be a, a jam band in the jam scene. And and I found the, the jam kids to be very open-minded, but um, it's just weird, you know, doing something off off the beaten path. So like, I guess what I'm saying is Billy Goat was like, like record labels. We had record deals, you know, we got signed by a major record label because mm-hmm. it was something that back then those people saw as manage something they can market. And it was what everyone was, you know, a lot of the kids were into back then. Yeah. As I've gotten older and more focused on the vibraphone and started using that word jazz and jazz is a dirty word. But specifically, if you use the word jazz in your bio, it scares off 90% of your fan base. So when the Harry Apes butt-moving experience started playing, because the vibe was more at the forefront, the vibraphone, we had to sort of like start looking for new fans again. A lot of the people that listened to the more metal side of Billy Goat, they they walked away. I mean, you know, but I would see some of the old fans stay around. But there was a mo- some dis- depression here and there. We you had knew you had you were rebuilding and you were building your following again. But to me, the focus really and people say this, but I had no choice. The focus was just on the art, yeah. Uh, because you know, lost management, lost record deals, lost all this shit, and we just made a record. And at that point, I was like, all right, I'm confident enough in my vibraphone playing not to have a guitar player in the band or Fender Rhodes. And we're going to do this as a trio, and it's all going to be on me and the bass player. So when you introduced, or when you started um, kind of to intersect with the word jazz, whether that was like the the bin at the record store at that time it went on, or the word in your bio, um, did you embrace that? Or were you kind of trying to avoid the connotations and the, the, the baggage that that carried? Well, no, I mean, it was a pure love. I mean, I grew up, I had drum teachers. I was in the Houston Youth Symphony and I went to a really great music school called North Texas State University that had an esteemed music program and they had jazz curriculum, classical curriculum, everything. And so it was in my blood. Like I was joking on a a podcast I did Monday that I was the jazz nerd, the music, well, let's say the music school nerd who stumbled literally by accident 
into a Bad Brains concert in 1986 <laughs> and it had my mind blown. Because if you saw the Bad Brains in 1986, <clears throat> it was like the most fierce concert you could see. <clears throat> you know, And I've talked to so many musicians who witnessed the fury of those four amazing musicians. And you know, there, I'd never seen anything like it. So, but the jazz thing was always in my blood and always nagging on my brain, like how to get back to playing an intense, you know, I just like to look at it like creative music, like sure. what Helen does or what Charlie, it's not really, I mean, real jazz stopped being real jazz. Of course people do it, but you know, you could arguably say 1959 to nine, you know, to the 60s and then when Miles went electric, you know, everything was changing. Even most, you know, like my favorite vibraphonist ever, Milt Jackson, jumped from playing like straight ahead to like, they were all sort of doing this sort of funk, smooth jazz mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, the fusion. Well, yeah, yeah, fusion that eventually became smooth jazz when they popped it out a little bit. But you know what I mean, the golden era, like after Miles Davis' yeah. second famous quintet was, was over, uh, you know, after the golden years of Ornette Coleman, you know, when John Coltrane passed away. I mean, you know, so many amazing groups back then. Of course, Art Blakey kept it going. I got to see Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers back in 1986, the same year I saw the Bad Brains. You know, I mean, that's one of the best things about being in my 50s. I've seen, I got to see some of the greats uh, play and when they were still playing at a high level. So it was always in my blood. So when that genre is applied to one of your albums, one of your solo albums, does that, um, you know, is that something that you, you, you feel is an obligation to have to categorize it somehow, but you would rather shed that baggage if you could? Well, it's, it's a genre. I mean, like, like I love black American music with all my heart. It's like been the thing that has inspired and made this country great. It's, you know, if you really want to talk about making America great again, <laughs> it's the art. Sure. That, that, it's the, the only everlasting thing of an empire is the art, uh, you know, innovation that comes out of the empire. Everything else is just bullshit rhetoric that politicians use to keep us all under control. And, and I'll stop. That's the only thing I'm going to say about <laughs> politics. Well, no, because we'll talk about the trio of albums later. But <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. Um, but but yeah, you know, it's such a sensitive. It's a weird thing because okay, like I know, like they gotta like labels and people trying to sell music. Bless any record label's heart this day. I mean, because. Yeah. Okay, it used to be like, all right, we're going to put this thing in the jazz category or the rock category, and people had no choice but go to the record store on Sunday, Saturday afternoons after mowing their yards if you were young, and you got to buy your two records for the week. Right. Or if you had an allowance, you know, whatever your allowance. But people had to do that. You know, now I just go to – we're all guilty. We go to our streaming service and yeah. listen to the, our YouTube and – you know, the artist gets what it was. What's the rate point? So anyway, it's a genre. So, but, and I respect that, that word so much. So, so like, yeah, I play jazz. Well, sort of, but I know they're just trying to describe it. I just like to say I play creative music and, and original music. Like that's, what's important to me. I played a beautiful set with one of the greatest new Orleans musicians. And there were 20 people there last night and it was all his compositions, two sax players, 
a guitarist, a pianist, an upright bass, and myself on drums and vibes. And it was just, you know, he's one of my favorite artists. But it, creative music doesn't really sell and pack it in. It's not like people go, ooh, let's go see some creative music and get drunk tonight. So... <laughs> <laughs> but 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 it, it, it's the, it's a question that that Brian and I grapple with a lot. I mean, here you know we've started a, a the craft food music is a streaming service, uh-huh. and we're not really streaming service guys at all. But we want to you know we get excited by sharing exciting new music with people and connecting people with the thing that they're that they're thirsting for. Well, and people ask, yeah. you know, is it can I go in there and and you know, okay, Mike Dillon's on craft food music. Can I go in there and and type in Mike Dillon and pull up his music? The answer is no. And it's by design because we want them to have to hear whatever we're shuffling at them. It's it's a music discovery app more than a streaming service, but it's trying to get at that thing that you described with the record store. You know, it's trying to, um, you know, through the curation and through the the design of, of the random shuffle, it's trying to, you know, put things in front of people that they wouldn't know to search for, you know? Exactly. And, and, you know, me as a 56 year old, I got to realize like, just like when my grandparents were 56 and he was playing me Bob Wills, my granddad, of course, that's some of the greatest music ever recorded. And thank you for playing me some Bob Wills. (laughs) But they had no idea what I was doing with my Sony Walkman and what, why I was, I had these earphones in my ears all the time back then. And then I was listening to Rush or Mahu Vishnu or whatever I was finding on my own. And that's the beautiful thing about what you guys are doing and the streaming thing in general. I mean, I've discovered so much new music and people have an opportunity to, to do that. So, and it's the new technology. So I can just sit around and sound like an old guy, wah, 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 or just be like, nope, this is what it is. And this is where we're going. It's cool what y'all are doing. Like, yeah. So that was my long-winded answer. Lots of coffee and a little bit of sugar to say, <laughs> yes, I give y'all, uh, <laughs> give you props for doing that. That's the way it should be done. It's an interesting irony. You're talking about the technology allows that kind of discovery and the ability to check out whoever without, you know, like I might maybe when I was 15, I wouldn't have paid 15 bucks if I you know, wasn't burning to have something. Now right. I can just, you know, touch it. But it's interesting because, you know, um, the Internet, the technology allows artists like yourself to reach audiences in these niche places and allows audiences to check out anything they want. But then we've also got like decreasing attention spans and, uh, you know, kind of a devaluation of music in general. So it's a, it's an interesting irony. It's the best of times and the worst of times, I think for artists. Exactly. Yeah. So is that something you kind of wring your hands over or do you just do your thing and, and do it? The I best just way do you my can? thing. I, you know, I'm just trying to be like, um, uh, 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 at my age, at 56, I'm still feel really young. 
and I'm blessed that I'm got good physical health and I can still jump off my vibraphones and, and roll around with kids <laughs> that are half my age and like I did two weeks ago at a festival and, and be fine. You know, like, so I'm just enjoying it every day. I mean, I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like every day's gravy. So I definitely don't spend time fretting over it or, or wringing my hands. I'm just like, yeah, let's see where it all goes. I mean, to me, that's just my personal creed right now. Like yeah. every day, some new shit's going to happen. Whoa, never saw that thing happen. Cool. <laughs> cool. Yeah. The pandemic. Yeah. Wow. Pandemic. We're not going to be able to tour. <laughs> well and then so speaking of that so you know you you take this hiatus where you know uh, some of us may have been you know binging some some netflix and uh putting on some more weight uh you decided to uh record not one but but three albums during this uh this interval tell us a bit about that yeah the way i deal with my craziness is just writing music and practicing and hitting my vibes it's nothing that unique it's what i think most artists or musicians or creative types do you just wake up and go i want to go hit my shit or i want to go draw a picture or i want to go write a poem and it was like after a week after going like oh goddamn and watching the news 24 7 trying to figure out like like in my head i was like oh there's gonna be a cure for this thing in no time because science is badass and they're <laughs> gonna be like well we find the cure we're all going back to south jazz fest is gonna happen you know but when it became obvious that that wasn't gonna happen and like oh fuck how are we gonna survive we started doing all those live streams mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. And that was nice, but I had already been recording a lot right starting in December. I had like a little two-week window off, and I was just doing my thing of like, all right, write a song a day, four-track it, put some stupid lyrics and, and uh, stupid vocals on it, and do the next one. So I had this nice body of work I'd started, and then I just got back into that mode. I was like, well, nothing else to do. Let's just start with the garage band. And recording my jams, and then I was like, I'm going to send them to my friends because we're all at home and no one's got anything going on. So I started, made a Dropbox folder and started sending, inviting people to it and just called it Quarantine Boogie Sessions. And I was like, hey, the, I'm going to make a record. Uh, let's just see what, what happens. Everyone just, the tracks are in here. If you feel inclined to jump in, do it. If not, no hard feelings, no big deal. And... I would say by the end of May, I called my engineer who I'd done Rosewood with, the record that came out the summer of the pandemic. And he was like, yeah, I'm re ready to start recording. Um, just one person at a time, no bands. I'll, I'll stay in the control room with a mask on and you can stay out in the tracking room. So I just brought in the hard drive of all the things I'd accumulated. I'd probably written 20 more songs. We dumped a bunch of stuff into the hard drive, and he started putting it all together. And then we, at that point, we're like, all right, we need a guitar. We need bass. So I started calling different folks and, or texting them and saying, hey, I need a bass track. I need this. And next thing you know, I had 30 songs finished. Not finished, but in good working order, and I was just really stoked not to be on tour and to be able to drive around, listen to songs, go in the studio a couple times a week. And I was using my live stream money to keep his studio open, pay their rent. And 
it was sort of like just what was going on at the time. Everyone was helping everyone out to keep it going. I was getting enough money to make my to pay my rent, so I helped my buddy with my leftover pay his rent. And um, you're hearing the New well, Orleans gutter punks in the in the background. Sorry. That's all right. So uh, so what evolved that of all all these uh, all these songs uh, were three three albums, each of which has a very unique flavor, which it's, I get the impression that there was a kind of like a more of a structured concept to each one, but did it evolve more or organically the way, the way you're describing it? Well, there were a couple of things at play. It was the, the file sharing. And then yes, I had gotten a mallet cat that I purchased from Ed Mann, who was the Zappa, Zappa's mallet player after Ruth Underwood. Hmm. And I was getting into some different analog synths. And so that was one big part of it. I had all this sort of synth-based music with a, this cool Alteria drum machine. So like one record all of a sudden became like, oh, it's more a little electronic. Mm-hmm. And then the other record was like, wow, this is more just like a fucking Captain Beefheart meets the Butthole Surfers meets uh, my crazy <laughs> world thing. That was Shoot the Moon. I shoot the Moon, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of Zappa. Like the guitar player would be like, all right, we need Stooges meets Beefheart. He'd be like, gotcha. You know, <laughs> you know, you know that was a, with the guitar players. Or I need Brian Eno meets Beefheart. You know, that was sort of like the, with the guitar players. That's what we tell them. My bass player, he's a little genius from New Orleans. I just, he, he just knew what to do. So I didn't tell him anything. Suitcase Man was the oddball of all of it because it's like my reflective singer-songwriter record with just a bunch of marimbas and my my gruff-ass voice. And um, Tiff Lampson from this band Givers down here in New Orleans did tons of beautiful background vocals because, you know, people like Leonard Cohen or, you know, Nick, I like it when I hear like singers that are badass like Nick Cave. He's a great lyricist. You know, yeah. I love the way he sings, but arguably, or Tom Waits, or any of these guys that don't have like great voices per se. Like they're not like an Al Green mm-hmm. or, yeah. or or Jeff Buckley kind of vocal heroics. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's no, a specific Dylan, character. This is there's a character in their voice we love. Or so I I know what category my voice is in and my limitations. So I was like, but you know what? I love Elliot Smith. I love Nick Drake, I love all these guys. I'm. It was a really dark and depressing time for 
for many reasons. And that just, that one was very organic. I was just sitting around in the house playing marimba and then start singing like suitcase man just came out of the in blue air and posted that on Instagram and people really liked it. So I was like, I'm going to do a whole record like this, just vibraphone, marimba and vocals. And my wife, Peregrine Honig, is a great uh, artist, poet, writer. She teamed up with me and we, we collaborated. So we would just spend hours working on like, no, try the word this way, like every day. And she was like, she's not a musician, but she's a fucking taskmaster. I just be like, wow, man, just fucking lay off me. I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> no, you can do better. <laughs> oh, that sucks. She just like snar it was like there was no like oh yeah that's great man it was like you know <laughs> she was pretty tough on me and she was really attentive to every word so i never spent that much time on a record focusing on the lyrics and then she ended up helping me on the lyrics on everything else there was only like two songs where she didn't have input in and of course she's like god those are such boy songs they're so stupid <laughs> 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 Living on the road for 30 years Never made myself a home Traveling from place to place Walking alone like a human Suitcase 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 man Drop my bags on the floor Instruments by the door My home is a Chevy van Guess that's why she calls me, calls me suitcase, suitcase, suitcase man. We're going to take a quick intermission for a word from our sponsor, the Craft Brood Music app, a curated music discovery app that streams music for serious listeners. Sometimes we hear that people want to hear more of the songs we play on the podcast. To hear more Craft Brood music, download the Craft Brood music app from the App Store or Google Play and get a free two-week trial. We'll help you discover music off the beaten path so that you become the person your friends turn to for recommendations, and we split our income with the artists. Craft Brood music, the music discovery app for serious listeners. To hear samples and find out more about us, visit craftbroodmusic.com. So you've crafted these three albums out of this process, the 1918 being the more kind of analog synth, electronica kind of meditative album, Suitcase Man being the very uh, contemplative kind of reflection on your life, and Shoot the Moon being the chaos that it is. And like they each have uh, a concept and a cohesiveness that brings those songs together. Yeah. Is, is the album listener still out there? Is that, is that person, that, that, that audience still out there in this day and age? Yeah, albums do better than ever. Thank God that Kevin Calibro is insane enough to release all three records from an artist <laughs> like me on the same day. And, you know, my fans, he prints up 500 copies of each record, and when they're gone, they're gone. I mean, I don't even think I have a copy of some of my records. You know, we sell them all. In a few titles, I don't have copies. And, and it's for that reason. People love putting on the side, splitting it up. It's really fun for me thinking in terms of, all right, this is going to be the great first set. You know, this is going to mm -hmm. be a really cool second set. You know, how are we going to start side two? How are we going to end it? And so can that 
aesthetic of the vinyl listener translate um, into the, the streaming world with the same material? You know, like the concepts, regardless of the experience or the, 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 the uh, organization of the songs, with your three albums as an example of kind of the concept, that size of collection of songs, you know, versus an EP or a single, um, does that translate, you think? Do, do your fans, by virtue of kind uh, of their adventurousness, follow you into the streaming world? Um, I mean, funny, you mentioned that. I started thinking a little Nas X. I mean, he made his first big hit on $20, basically, and got went, went through TikTok and got, what, 100 million views, listens, whatever you want to call them, streams. I mean, yeah. one song. Like, that. management would tell you the way you do it is make one song that catches fire, and that's how you're going to light things up on the streaming world. But my buddies in Clutch, what they've been doing is actively going, all right, you guys, we're releasing this only on digital platform. Let's get over to Spotify. And, and they started ushering their hardcore fans, hard-won fans over 30 years of touring, to become receptive to the streaming thing. So I think it's for artists like me, it's going to be, it's up to me to like, do the work and to get the fans I have in the streaming world, then hopefully that in turn makes me get a few fans that discover me on, uh, on these, like, like, you know, I thought I was talking to, I didn't, Kevin didn't tell me what, who y'all were or what it was. He just said, you want to do it? I said, sure. And I saw the name of your, your, your Zen cast. And at first I was like, Oh, cool, man. Sounds like these guys are craft beer guys, man. And they're going to be talking to me about, <laughs> <laughs> music and beer and I you know I quit drinking a few years ago but then I realized no that's what y'all are y'all are just like the craft beer guys you're just like the good weed guys like that's right. what y'all are doing with the music and that's why it's a great name now I fucking fully get it my epiphany went off about five minutes ago but does it translate all these records that's a good question I don't even know if I have an answer for you I, you know, I think it does. I mean, I love listening to them in album form, and I love listening to all the songs on one CD in my yeah. van and just jumping around. So, yeah, it translates. Yeah. So the, the the other way, the other way I wanted to ask this question was, if like you're a hardcore Rush fan, and like you're the guy who wants to listen to all 11 minutes of Xanadu, like in a streaming world, like how do you how do you find that? Uh, nah, I mean, nah, 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 oh, behold the sacred <laughs> temples. I mean, Xanadu. Feast, feast on honeydew. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I was. I listened to that record the other day. <laughs> really? I streamed it. I listened to it. Correct. Um, yeah, I, I did. I, I listened to I went through a rush phase the other day on a long drive from Tucson yeah. to Dallas and I, and I listen to it all on, you know, my streaming platform. And that and that's how I use streaming platforms too. I listen to full albums start to finish in the order they were conceived <laughs> and people are like you're doing it wrong. You're supposed to like find a cool single and listen to it or like put it on shuffle. I'm like, "No, like this is the way that they meant A Farewell to Kings is supposed to go in this order." You, yeah, know, you can't listen to it like that. Fucking awesome that Primus is doing that because I hadn't listened to Rush in ages and I was like, "Man, everyone's talking about what a great job I'm going to go listen to Farewell to Kings. And that's what I did. <laughs> you know, and I listened to the whole record. And it's just like, yes, it, it can translate. Just like 
you know, I've been listening to, I think it's With Teeth. That record sounds great. Like, I got the vinyl version, and then I listen to it on, you know, on, on, on the stream as well when I'm driving around. I don't have my record player in my car, and they're fucking <laughs> yeah. both awesome. That's right. But there's something, there's something, there's a, there's a depth to the, the vinyl that, that just sounds different than anything else. Yeah. And that's why vinyl is so popular right now and why it's so, it's never going to go away. But I can remember when they're like, oh, vinyl's dead. And now it's the only thing that's saving record labels. Right. Yeah. And saving, and saving the concept of the album, perhaps. Yep. Exactly. So, yes, vinyl is, saved all of the uh saved recording studios it saved you know musicians are making records all because we're wanting to make that vinyl experience the last piece of territory i wanted to, to cover was uh, the, your instrument the, your main instrument the vibraphone and the, the all your music no matter what genre you're you're moving through that seems to be uh the uh, the centerpiece is a celebration of this instrument. You'd, you'd mentioned Milt Jackson, but you also mentioned uh, uh, Zappa and Ruth Underwood. Um, what where did the the love of the vibraphone come from? Well, I wanted to be a drummer, so they started me off in fifth grade fifth grade band. My mom and the teachers, and you had to play mallets. So. I just was always sort of had a knack to playing mallets. I was better on mallets than say drum set. And I would always try out for snare drum in drum line, say at college, and they threw me in the pit because I could play mallets. So I was just sort of kept getting shuffled toward the mallets. And then I remember in eighth grade listening, somehow I got, Tinseltown Rebellion Band and, and Joe's Garage on cassette. And I would listen to those mm -hmm. records all the time. So Zappa was a, a pretty important part of my musical concept. And, you know, we're listening to Rush. Rush was my favorite band and all the other prog rock bands, even like, like Brand X and Alan Holsworth, just tons of records. And I would always hear like vibraphone or uh, Zappa more marimba and mm -hmm xylophone kind of things that were just part of the music and up front and it was sort of an accident but I had my vibraphone and in 1994 when I started I saw this Thelonious Monk movie Straight No Chaser that uh, Clint Eastwood yeah the Clint Eastwood movie and it was in uh in a hotel I was just like I need to start playing my vibraphone again and Somewhere along the way, I was like, why can't this be in rock and roll? So, and then being the mindset I have, I was just, it'd be, I was just like, you know what? I'm going to do the vibraphone at the front of the bands, and I'm going to do it with my music, you know, with what's important to me. I, I wasn't going to try to be a straight-ahead player because I didn't feel like I had the chops or I was good enough to play straight-ahead. So I, you know, played weird funk-punk whatever this shit is I do to, you just described and played weird creative music. And somehow there's been a, a little niche that has paid the bills and uh, I've had a great life. And, but it's truly, I've wanted on, on just a, the art potential of the vibraphone. I just never understood why. Well, there was the xylophone craze back in the early part of the last century 
where everyone had a xylophone, everyone took lessons from the George Hamilton Green, uh, 50 lessons for the xylophone, and it was it was like super popular before the guitar took over. Mm. I was like, why can't the xylophone be really popular? I mean, everyone calls it a xylophone wherever you go. I, you know, <laughs> when we open for Clutch, hey man, love your xylophone playing. So there's a visceral thing that people saw through it. <clears throat> so I was like, if you play it with energy and you, you know, it doesn't have to be this sleepy inner instrument at a lounge or in the back of the orchestra. I mean that with all respect. I'm just saying, like it, 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 it can be any instrument can be whatever it wants to be. And then I discovered pickups on it, and running it through guitar amps and pedals, and a lot of that was being in that band Critters Buggin, where the sax player Skerrick was really into running his sax through pedals and guitar amps. Mm-hmm. I just saw a lot of untapped potential for it, and you know I wanted to be a guitar player, but I was. I just never could really get my fingers. They're big. Stu- I got big, stupid fingers that, <laughs> from playing drums. It just never really worked on a guitar. So it was just like, all right, you're going to do it on a vibraphone. And 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 the, and the last thing I'll say was the desire to write on it. So when I started yeah. writing, just like most people that write, you have no idea what you're doing. You learn a few chords. And I did have music theory in me. But it just became a journey to become a, a better songwriter. And that's what it is. All those things are still in play today. Like, just get a little better every day. I was really proud of, of the, the trilogy coming out and Rosewood that came out before that. People are, you know, responding to it. And to me, it just is like, all right, I'm just going to keep until I die, be a better musician, a better songwriter, try to better be a better singer. And hopefully inspire some kids to like take the vibraphone and run it through fucking giant Marshall stacks and rule the world. listening. Craft Brewed Music, both the podcast and the Music Discovery app, has the mission of promoting this music and these artists. We can't do that without ears on the music. So if you like what you've heard here, we're going to ask you two small favors. First, tell someone about the podcast. Second, go to the App Store or Google Play, download the Craft Brewed Music app, and try a free two-week trial of the curated streaming service. For more information, visit us at craftbrewedmusic.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.